On the 13th of November in the year 1618, in a little Dutch town of Dordrecht or Dort, there was the first meeting, the first session of a great uh, synod, the, the first and only international reformed synod. And there were represented, representatives from, from eight foreign reformed churches who were invited to take part. And that included England, Scotland, France, Geneva, Germany. We could just say modern-day Canada in some ways. But in those days, the Dutch Reformed Church was having great trouble, having a great controversy, and it invited these people to help them solve it. And what was that controversy? Well, it was the rise of something called Arminianism. What is Arminianism? It is a system of thought which at its core dethrones God as sovereign in salvation. It puts the will of man on the throne. But of course, man cannot go upon the throne of God. And therefore, it says that God is not sovereign in salvation. No, man is, according to the Arminians. And this group, uh, they started spreading their unbiblical ideas in Holland through books, through pamphlets, and some of their men were in the pulpits, and so they were preaching from there as well, and that caused unrest, it caused confusion in the Dutch Reformed Church, which itself was only a few decades old in, 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 a, in, a, in a land that had only recently freed itself from Spanish tyranny. Now, why were they called Arminians? Many people get confused with Armenians. Uh, they are people from Armenia. No, the Arminians were named after their leader called Jacob Arminius in his Latin version of his name. He was born in 1560. He, he studied at the University of Leiden, a, a famous university, still is. Uh, and he even studied in Geneva, of all places, under Beza. He also then ministered in Amsterdam. And he was a, an intelligent man, he was an academic man, he was, a, he was a, a popular man. 1603, he became lecturer in theology at Leiden University, one of the main universities where all the, all the preachers were educated. And one of the things that he did is he advocated revising the confession on certain grounds, saying that the confession wasn't wasn't quite as biblical as it should be, and the catechism, the Heidelberg catechism, wasn't quite as, as, as it should be. And yet to pin him down on exactly what he believed was very difficult, which, which question and answers needed updating, which, which, which part of the confession needed changing. Now there were public debates, there were academic debates that were held, and, and there were a number of solid theologians charged him clearly with heresy. And in 1609, it's only six years after being appointed professor, Arminius died, but his movement continued. Continued uh, sowing unrest and, and sowing uh, error and heresy. But in 1610, they were finally pressed to publish something, to put something on pen and paper. And so they published what they called their five articles of remonstrance. Now, remonstrance is not a word uh, that we use often remonstrance, that is they remonstrated or they demonstrated would be a more common word that we would use, they demonstrated against the lack of freedom for their new ideas. 
They wanted the freedom just to, 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 to change uh, doctrines, to, uh, to bring in new doctrines without being hassled by the church authorities. So the five articles of remonstrance. Now there were attempts uh, from 1610 to, to sort out this problem, but there were politicians who liked the remonstrance, who liked Arminius, even though he had passed away by now. And a very particular powerful uh, politician, Older Barnefeld, uh, he was very in favor of the Arminians, and yet he had such a, an iron grip on power. Finally, in 1618, Prince Maurice of Orange took measures into his own hand, having had Older Barnefeld and, his, and uh, others of his ilk arrested in August. And then he called a synod. He called a church synod to be held at this place called Dort. Now, the remonstrants, the Arminians, were now led by a different man because Arminius was long in the grave uh, and by a man called Simon Episcopius. And they were asked to explain their beliefs to, the, to the, the synod. And the synod was a large hall. It had seating uh, left and right that, that, that raised up and it was facing each other. In the middle there were large tables and around those tables there were some scribes at the end. But that's where the remonstrants themselves were, uh, as it were, under uh, trial or under uh, being examined for what they did truly believe. And there followed repeated attempts by the remonstrants to derail the process. They did not want to be honestly examined. They avoided examination. They made false accusations against, against people in, in the hall, against other ministers. They also questioned the authority of the council. And they twisted Calvinistic understanding of election and predestination into something it isn't. They tried to sort of uh, set the Calvinists against each other into the various groups. So finally, when we get to the 57th session, the 57th sitting of this council uh, in the, the following year, January of 1619, the moderator of the synod, a man called Professor Johannes Bocherman, he, he gave a speech on the floor. And he ended his speech with these words. And he said this, The synod has treated you, and he's speaking to the remonstrants, with all mildness, gentleness, friendliness, forbearance, long-suffering, justice, simplicity, uh, magnanimity, great-heartedness, and grace. But ye have not given anything else in return than false trickery, deceit, and lies. I shall dismiss you with a witness that was given by one of the foreigners. Depart upon the same foot as you are come. You began with a lie and have ended with a lie. Episcopius lied in his opening speech when he said he had no other copy of his speech. And in his final oration he lied when he said that their statement on the first article was ready when the entire synod had heard him say the exact opposite. And as Bogerman concluded his speech and being deeply outraged, he, he put his hand towards the group of the remonstrants and he shouted at them in Latin. He said, Demitimini exite, depart ye, be gone. But now, the, now that the remonstrants had been sent away, uh, the, the, the men had to, had to meet together and try to understand for, uh, and they spent another five months in trying to understand and examine the five articles of remonstrance. And they, arted, they answered each article, article for article. 
what they said. What are those five articles of the remonstrance and their lies about salvation? Well, firstly, they, they said that God chose people conditionally. That God could see into the future from eternity and saw that they themselves chose to believe that's why he chose them. That's why he elected them. Their second lying article is that Christ died an atoning death for absolutely every person. Thirdly, they said, man is only spiritually sick. Not dead in trespasses and sins, but spiritually sick and therefore still has some ability to please God and plays a vital role in his own salvation. Fourthly, they said the work of the Spirit of God can be resisted because man is sovereign and God isn't. Now, they don't phrase it that openly. It's very subtle language if you've ever read them. But that's what it comes down to. And fifthly, there exists the possibility of falling from grace. If man did not have the willpower to keep his own salvation... He would also have the free will to unsave himself. Now we must, as did the men uh, in 1618, 1619, refute as heresy these Arminian points made by the remonstrants. Why? Because they strike at the very heart of the gospel. They strike at the very uh, work of Christ. They strike at the very plan of salvation as is revealed throughout the Bible. Now, the biblical answers the Synod of Dort gave to each of these points came to be called the canons or the rules of Dort, otherwise known as the five points of Calvinism, which is unfair because Calvinism has many other points to say, or the doctrines of grace. That's a very common phrase used by many, the doctrines of grace, and also known if none of those, none of those phrases uh, are recognized by yourself by the acronym TULIP. TULIP. And very apt, of course, that such a flower would have blossomed and flourished there in Holland, known for its tulips. So TULIP therefore stands for T-U-L-I-P, and it, and it has those letters standing for words and phrases. If you're, if you're keen, you'll realize the order has changed somewhat, because if we followed the remonstrance order, we would have a, a flower called Ultip, and I've never seen a flower called Ultip. So we're keeping to Tulip. So the order's slightly different. So it begins with T is total depravity. Secondly, U for unconditional election. Third, for limited, particular atonement. And fourthly, I for irresistible grace. And fifth, for the perseverance of the saints. Now these doctrines of grace are not obscure theological uh, points of debate. But they are to be found at the very heart of the biblical gospel, at the very heart of it. In fact, these five are the five heartbeats at the very heart of the gospel and the heartbeats of God's love towards his people. So with Lord's help, we will briefly uh, examine some of these and and may we understand that we see something of the gospel. We see the heart of the gospel in all of these things. We see the love of God reaching out towards, uh, towards sinful and fallen man. So let's start with the first heartbeat. Total depravity. Total depravity, the tea of tulip. 
Total depravity does not mean that we are as wicked as we could be. It does not mean um, that, 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 that the whole of mankind is as, is as festering and as wicked as, a, 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 as, as, it, as it could theoretically be. What it does mean, though, it means that since the fall, or, or the fall has affected all of mankind, in every age, in every area of life, has been stained, it has been affected. Moral and spiritual depravity has affected mankind totally. If we know anything about our own heart, as the Bible says so, we know it's true. That the heart is deceitfully wicked, it's totally depraved. We look around us in the world. None of us can say that everything is good and everything is holy and there is no sin. No, there is total depravity. Depravity has touched every part of society, every part of, 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 of everything, of families. And, and speaking to the believers, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, concerning the total depravity of man. And he says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, our behavior in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So in this passage... We see in great contrast to the good news of the gospel, the bad news of sin, the bad news of our fall and our corruptedness. We see a sinner is spiritually dead to God. He's not unwell, he's dead. And will not seek peace with God, but continues to sin against him. Left to his own devices. A sinner born sins and dies in his sin. We see also that the sinner is an enemy of God and ser- is an enemy of God and serves the enemy of God, the devil, whether he or she is aware of it or not. And thirdly, we see that God's wrath is upon him or her for these reasons. There is wrath, there is darkness, there is death. So we can say of all mankind outside of grace that mankind is dead. Mankind is of the devil, mankind is damned. Hence, total depravity. And in spite of any practical good and any human kindness that we show to others, all of humanity remain moral criminals towards God. We, we can't bribe God with good works, religious religion. Our good works do not help us. Rather, they accuse us. For our thoughts and our desires and our deeds are against a good and a holy God, a kind God, a merciful God. And our deeds are done independently from God when they are not done in faith. We want to live independently for God, showing this, that all that would live apart from Jehovah God and the gospel and Jesus Christ consider their giver of life as dead to them. And so from this, let us then understand the sinner's great need to be reconciled to God. And if you are not saved, 
and your total depravity calls God's wrath upon you, and you need reconciling to God. And there is only one way of reconciliation that God has given, and that is the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. Only one way of the millions of ways that have been invented by man, of the philosophies and the religions and, and, and the ideals and the movements, it is only coming upon your knees to the Lord Jesus Christ, coming before God and pleading for forgiveness, calling upon the name of the Lord and being saved. The only way to be saved from this total depravity, this curse and blight upon our lives, and this is how we're born. God forbid that any of you should die in that situation. So the first heartbeat of the gospel is that God looks with pity upon a, a mass of a seething mass of wicked, hate, God-hating sinners, which brings us to heartbeat two. Because we are by nature totally depraved, because we love sin and we hate God, because we do not choose God and we will not choose God, we do not choose the gospel, we do not choose the way of repentance and faith, we will not choose to be saved. We will not choose to be saved. Luther calls this the bondage of the will. The, w the will of man is not free when it comes to spiritual and moral matters. It's bound because he is a moral criminal. And the pride of sin prevents us from repenting. We will not repent because of the pride of sin and the self-righteousness therein. We will not repent. We want that God will change, but we do not want us to change. But we will not choose God's way. And therefore, what is this? God must do the choosing. That's what the second heartbeat's all about. Is that where we wouldn't choose and we couldn't choose, we see that God does choose. God elects. That word choose means elect. But on what basis does he elect people to save them? Well, we can read in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9, it says, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. You see there that God chooses and calls his people not according to their works because we've already discovered what their works are. They're all totally depraved outside of God, outside of Christ, outside of grace. There is no hope. And they will not choose, they will not call upon the name of the Lord and therefore God must choose. And certainly it cannot be according to our works because our works, what do they do? They call upon us God's wrath. God's curse, God's damnation. We can thank God it is not according to our works. That he didn't look at us and, and decide, well, is, is there anything in them? Because not one single human soul would ever be saved. If there was any conditionality at all, we could not be saved. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Because of the total depravity, it cannot be according to God, our, our works. Never on the condition of good works. Isaiah the prophet says, 
chapter 64 and verse 6, a well-known verse, and but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And this is the glorious truth of the gospel, the, the, the first beams of God's love shining out towards humanity, that God chooses some for no reason to be found in them, and others he passes by for the reason of their sin and rebellion that is found in them. Now, some might turn around and say, well, why doesn't God save everybody? But nobody has the right to salvation. Nobody has the right to say, Lord, I demand, I, I demand salvation. I have, I have the right to salvation. The Lord has concluded everybody under, under sin, under the curse, because we sin against him. And we do not choose him. We do not come to him. Nobody comes to him. The miracle of miracles, or the wonder of wonders, is the fact that God elects anybody. But he elects because he has settled his love upon a number. A number that no man can, can count for his own son, Jesus Christ. God chooses because we will not. And the doctrine of election that God chooses personally, God personally chooses, is a very comforting teaching. If you understand anything about your own conversion or about your own walk with, with, with God, that in spite of us, God chose us. Why will we yet sinners? Christ died for us. That the plan of, of salvation was going ahead even before we were born. And we could say for Old Testament saints, God was working out that plan of salvation and was fulfilling it in Jesus Christ years or decades or centuries after they had died. God's continuing with this great plan. Glorious plan. We would not choose him, but he chose us. We couldn't choose because we were dead in trespasses and sins, but he that ever liveth chose God who can choose, did choose, and he chose us in Christ, and he chose us for Christ, and chose us for the glory of his grace, as we read in Ephesians 1 and verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Thank God that he elected a great number of unworthy and depraved sinners to grant them salvation. Why? Because he had decided to settle his true and divine love upon unworthy people to bring himself glory, to the praise of the glory of his grace, the undeserved favor and love of God granted to the unworthy. So we've seen now the first heartbeat, total depravity, and yet in spite of that heartbeat, number two, in unconditional election, God does not choose on any condition found in us, for no one would meet any divine condition. Thirdly, we have the third heartbeat, which is called limited atonement. And what does that mean? Well, it means this. Those whom God chooses, he saves. Those whom he chooses, he saves. And, and how does he save them? Through having Christ dying in their place upon the cross, making atonement 
for them. And this is at the very heart of this, this point, this limited atonement. What is atonement? Atonement is a sacrifice that brings peace where there was none. There was no peace, uh, and, and peace is worked. It's a work of reconciliation where there was division. This is what we read in Romans 5. It unites God and man who were disunited because of sin. This is, the, this is what atonement is all about. It's, it's an old Anglo-Saxon word, at one month. And it is the way, God's way of turning division into unity and peace. They were, they were separated, but now they've become at one, united. And this atonement that Christ has wrought is a full atonement. It is a full and absolute work of reconciliation. He has done it all. He has done it all for those for whom he died. Every guilt, every sin, every transgression, every cause of rupture has been now united in Christ. Not only is he God and man in himself, but his work is to bring God and man together in full reconciliation. Now the tulip term, the L in tulip, is, says limited atonement. Now, that can, that can make it sound as if Christ's work is in some way limited it's, or limited in power. That's not what it means. It means it's, it's, it's limited to the elect. It's limited to the elect that God, those people that God chose for no, no good reason found in them, God chose them. It's certainly not limited in power. We could, say, we could say particular atonement, which means God's people are individually atoned for. It's, it's a personal work of Christ upon the cross. The value of that work is, is for the sins of the whole world, a billion worlds. That's the value of it. But the application of it is very particular. Some people use that word particular. Some say a definite atonement. Those whom God chose will definitely be saved. It's definitely for that person. And, and so it's good to know that we're, we're, just not a be, we're just not a faceless number in God's eyes. We're individual sinners whom he has looked upon with pity, who deserve no pity, and he sent his son to die for you. For you, you personally. Having an, an eye upon you. Christ laid down his life for the sheep. Yes, we understand this. And the sheep are the elect. He did not lay down his life for the goats. So this is another idea of definite atonement. It was definitely for, for the elect. Christ says in John 10 and verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And then he speaks just a few verses later to the unbelieving Jews and, and says, But ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And so there are those for whom Christ gave his life, and they are the ones that the Lord in eternity elected, and he calls them his sheep, for he is the shepherd of his sheep. And they will hear his voice because uh, they will be drawn, they will be called, as we will see in the fourth point. There is, as we understand then, from this third heartbeat, when we consider limited atonement or definite uh, atonement, that there is a full atonement 
for every believer, absolutely fully atoned for. And therefore, because there is a full atonement, we can all rest absolutely in the work and the grace of Christ. We can rest in Him. We no longer have to be doing things to earn love or to earn salvation. Yes, the Lord has duties for us. He has, he has, he has work for us. Not to earn His love or to keep His love, but to show our love towards Him. If you love me, keep my commandments. But we may learn to rest, and sometimes we have to learn that this atoning work, this grace that's being given us, means that we, we don't have to work for the love. We don't have to do this and do that to earn God's favor. But we may rest in Him. So full atonement for the believer, but not for the sinner that rejects the gospel. There is no atonement There's no extra uh, work that they can look to of their own or of anyone else. There is no atonement, there's no forgiveness, there's no peace for those that reject the gospel. And therefore, do not reject the gospel. Do not reject the good news of Jesus Christ. Do not reject the command and the call of the gospel to repent and believe. Lest you say that God is a liar and Christ died in vain for your soul. So heartbeat one, total depravity. Heartbeat two, unconditional election. Heartbeat three, limited but very full atonement. Heartbeat four, irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. The grace and the love of God that goes out to his elect in due course is irresistible. Because a a sinner who is a member of the elect may know nothing about this. Does not know anything about it. They're still a godless sinner until God saves them. That's what we read in Ephesians. Oh, that's what what we didn't read, but I will read in Ephesians. We have read it. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 it says, Among whom, that is the children of disobedience, also we all had our conversation in times past. In the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But because the sinner is eternally of the elect, has been eternally chosen of God, for nothing in them they are a lost sheep yet to be saved, but they will be saved. They will be saved, and, and, and this drawing to salvation. Is, is expressed in the compulsion of the atonement. Because of the, because of the work of the atonement, because the, the power of the blood, because of the divine plan that cannot be uh, resisted, because of the going forth of the Spirit to the elect in due time, according to the covenant of grace, it is irresistible. They are irresistibly drawn to Christ. They, they, the elect, can we say, uh, when the Lord is dealing with them to bring them to conversion, to bring them to Christ, they cannot resist the drawing power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Cannot. The Lord says so in John 6 and verse 44. He says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So there's a drawing to Christ and then there's a fulfillment of all the work of Christ when he talks about the resurrection. As he's talking about the A to Z of of salvation. They're drawn to Christ and Christ, as it were, uh, uh, leapfrogs all these other wonderful truths just to say, but but I'll raise him up. 
body and soul on the last day. Includes the conversion. Includes the soul going to glory. Includes Christ's return and the resurrection of the dead. And this grace, this undeserved loving favor of God that no one can withstand, no one can reject, no one can fight against, regenerates the soul of the elect sinner. It renews their will. It gives him or her faith to repent and to turn to Christ. That's the the miracle of miracles that's done in there. There's nothing about God forcing anybody. God comes when he applies the atoning work of Christ to a sinner that a sinner cannot resist. They cannot resist. Their, their eyes are opened. The will has been healed. It has been restored. They understand that they're sinners. They understand that Jesus is the gift to sinners. They understand that, they, that, they, that, that he gives. The forgiveness is through him. They desire forgiveness. His people are made willing in the day of his power. And they're made willing. And therefore it is irresistible grace. Because when the love and the power and the grace of God comes into a sinner's life, the sinner's changed. Dramatically changed. Because he is drawing you with cords of love. You might say, oh, cords of love, isn't that sort of sweet and and sappy word? Old Testament language. For the love of God to his people, drawing with cords of love, turning the heart from stone to flesh, causing you to desire and to love him. And therefore, if we realize what the Lord has done for us, are we not to return some of that love? Are we not to return some of that, some of that love in, in following him, in being devoted to him, in keeping his every word? So we've had those four heartbeats already, the depravity, the election, the atonement, irresistible grace, irresistible work of the Spirit. And and fifthly and finally, the the final heartbeat is called perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. So these corrupt sinners then, whom, whom God chose in all eternity, for whom Christ atoned for in time, to whom God drew to Christ by his gracious and irresistible power, these redeemed sinners of God, God never lets go of. That's all that five point, fifth point means. He never lets them go. He doesn't save them and allow them to fall. Because those who are truly saved have become born again of the Spirit of God. The, born, the Spirit comes in and he stays in. He causes that conversion. He causes conviction unto uh, conversion. They have now become the children of God because through the work of the Spirit, as he applies the work of Christ, they have become the children of the living God. God does not abandon his children. Humans, unfortunately, do reject, abandon. Many, many fathers walk away from their children in this broken society. But God the Father never walks away from his children. You've become a younger brother, a sister of Christ.
We've become one in the family. Verse 6 of Ephesians 1, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, brought into the family of God. Accepted. There are no grounds for rejection. Because all their sins have been paid for by Christ. They are sprinkled in his blood. All offense has been removed. And we are united to Christ forever and ever. See, that atoning work of Jesus Christ that brings together those that were separated, it can never fail. Forever. When you have been brought nigh by the blood of Christ have been atoned for, and have you been united to God in Christ, that work will never be undone. It cannot. You cannot fall from grace because Christ's redemption cannot fail. The will of the Father will be achieved. The work of the Spirit cannot be undone. And in spite of themselves, and in spite of their backslidings, in spite of their sin, the true believer is actively kept by God. They are preserved. Therefore, the saint will persevere in the faith until the end. This fifth point is sometimes called the preservation of the saints, the perseverance of the saints. The Lord speaks these comforting words in John 10, 27 uh, 27 to 29. He says, as we've already read this verse, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Child of God, you are held as something very precious in the hand of God himself. In the hand of God, something very precious not in and of yourself, because we saw that in point one, that we are totally depraved, we are the rotten apple. And yet by God's grace, by that irresistible grace, according to election, we've been sprinkled in the precious blood of Christ. We've been brought into the family of God. You are very precious in the Lord's sight because of Jesus. You unite yourself by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or you are united by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. You will never perish. You will never fall away. Because you have an eternal home in glory uh, with your Redeemer. You know, no one can take away your salvation. Not even yourself. You know, these five heartbeats heartbeats that we've seen are at the very heart of the gospel gospel going forth to those who are undeserving and unwilling, but making such a change, such a glorious change, saved by God's election through Christ's atonement, by the Spirit's regenerating and preserving work. I couldn't save myself. I cannot keep myself, but thanks be to God for the love and power of Christ. We consider the gospel application of this. Well, the total depravity. We all deserve judgment. We don't deserve any mercy. That is the bad news, as I've also mentioned. But the good news is, is that while we can't and do not choose God, God is the one 
who can choose. And for those who repent and believe, there is a full atonement, and God will draw you irresistibly into salvation in Christ, and having saved you, God will keep you. The hope that we have that there's one day that we will be with the Lord Jesus Christ, that His Spirit is drawing us to be with Him and to have that eternal life. The reason why He died for His people is to give them eternal life. Eternal life for what? Eternal life for Christ and with Christ. To know the joy of our salvation as we've never known before. And so to the sinner, you must come to Christ. You must repent. You must believe that these glorious truths may be your own truth. May God bless His Word to your souls. Amen.